Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Uh, welcome back, everyone. Again, uh, my name is uh, Descartes Lee, and I'm the chair of this UCSF uh, mini medical school for the public entitled Science of the Mind. And um, wanted to uh, welcome you all back and thank you for being a really great audience. I've been very uh, pleased with the feedback about, from the speakers about you saying what a great audience and group you've been. And so I'm hoping you'll return the favor this evening and not necessarily saying totally wonderful things with the speakers, but giving us actual honest feedback and suggestions about how we can make this uh, course better for you. Today is the last um, uh, presentation out of the six that we did. And uh, I thought it was a, a very good kind of broad overview of a lot of different topics in psychiatry. Uh, we talked about, just to remind you, we talked about Dr. Wolkowitz talked about DNA and stress and depression. Uh, Dr. Stephen Hall talked about aging and maintaining uh, mood throughout the life cycle. Dr. Allison Harvey talked to you about sleep and its importance in maintaining your mood. Uh, I talked about uh, uh, kind of the recent uh, treatments in for depression, mostly brain uh, interventions and what they tell us about the brain. And then last week we had a great presentation by Dr. Paul Ekman about the face and facial expression. And um, today I'm really pleased to present Dr. Stuart Eisendrath, who's going to be talking to us about mindfulness and maintaining mood through uh, mindfulness. And I think it's very appropriate that he's going to be talking about some techniques that have been around for many thousands of years uh, and, the, and it's, a, I think, a cool way to kind of end up the course kind of at the beginning in some ways. Um, let me just say a little bit about Dr. Eisendrath before we get started. Uh, he is a professor of psychiatry in our department. He is the director of the UCSF Depression Center. Uh, he's also director of the clinical services at Langley Porter, meaning he kind of oversees all the uh, clinical service that are provided by us. So in a way, he's my boss, so I have to say good things about him. But I would say good things about him no matter what. Um, he has extensive clinical experience. He's been interested in the mind-body uh, conundrum for a very long time. Uh, he teaches uh, uh, evidence-based psychotherapies, including mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, which he's going to talk to you about today, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, and interpersonal therapy. Um, I have to, on a personal note, he has been a great role model for me. Uh, he's been a mentor to me. Uh, and about, I have to say about, uh, I think it was five or maybe ten years now, uh, Stuart came to me and we were talking about meditation and mindfulness and how he was very interested in this. And I thought to myself, he's, always so, he's already so wise and relaxed and has so much... Um, uh, perspective on things. He doesn't need to meditate anymore. It's, it's kind of like if he does this, it's kind of like the rich getting richer. You know, it's other people like me who we need to meditate more. So I'm very pleased to uh, introduce um, uh, Dr. Eisendrath, and uh, thank you for coming. Thank you very much for that nice introduction. I'm happy to be here and uh, be closing out the series. It sounds like you've had a, a, a great uh, collection of speakers. 
Uh, I'm going to be talking about mindfulness meditation, and sometimes that goes by various names, uh, uh, in, in, depending on the setting that you're talking about. But uh, we'll be focusing on mindfulness meditation and how you can use it in various ways to help uh, yourself deal with uh, regulating moods. And I'm going to be doing that by uh, discussing a bit about what mindfulness is and then uh, discussing some of the scientific literature about applying mindfulness meditation to different clinical problems. And then we'll do some mindfulness exercise, a little bit of experience, and uh, have a chance for, uh, to talk about that a little bit, and then talk about some of the current theories about how mindfulness meditation actually may be helpful. What is it really doing in terms of uh, its beneficial effects? As Descartes said, uh, mindfulness meditation isn't really something new. It's, uh, it's been around for 2,500 years or more, and in fact, if you look at many of the world religions, some type of meditation similar to mindfulness meditation has uh, been a part of it in one way or another. But we're going to talk about it really separate from any particular religious focus and how it can be applied no matter what religion you might be and uh, how it can be useful. So what, what is mindfulness? Well, what we mean by mindfulness is... Uh, uh, a couple of different definitions of it. One, and probably the most commonly quoted one, is the top one by John Kabat-Zinn, in, uh, where mindfulness means paying attention in a particular way, on purpose, in the present moment, and non-judgmentally. So each one of those phrases is important in terms of how you think about mindfulness. And we'll see that in, in a little bit, I think, as we go through some of this. Another way of thinking about mindfulness is its non-evaluative awareness to one's inner and outer environment. That means seeing things as they are, accepting things as they are, not judging them good or bad, but just accepting them as they are. I'd like... Uh, to just illustrate, though, that this is not that uh, that uh, readily done in our everyday life often. Most of the time, we go through life uh, without much mindfulness. I mean, you know, if you go to, uh, you know, you're driving along and you get to a, uh, a stoplight and you realize, geez, you may have gone through another stoplight or there were three stoplights, did you stop for them or not, you know? You may be driving, uh, not really paying much attention to what's been going on. Uh, sort of a mindless way. It may still be, or an automatic mode, if you will, which can be beneficial. It can help you get through a lot of things, and it's good, you know, we do things automatically, like our breathing is automatic and so on. But that when we talk about mindfulness, we're talking about bringing attention to focus on something very specifically. That's the essence of mindfulness. Mindfulness can be thought of as if it's a searchlight that you're bringing to bear and focusing on something. And in our mindfulness exercises, as we teach them in our classes, we may focus on the breath or the body or different sensations. 
but you can also bring it to bear on virtually anything. But, and it's not so easy. I want to give you a, a quick example of this. I want to, uh, I'm going to play something for you, and it's a little scene, and I want you to pay close attention to it and see if you notice anything unusual about it. Okay, did anybody notice anything unusual happening there? How many didn't notice anything special? Raise your hand. Okay, so a pretty good number. Uh, how many did notice something? Okay, maybe about a quarter of you. What, what did you notice, sir? The shirt and different people. Okay. What do others notice anything else? His eyes were closed. His eyes were closed. Okay, how many noticed a different shirt? And how many noticed a different person? So really about maybe 10% of you noticed that. Let's look at it again. Still looks the same. You want to see it again? <laughs> it, it is a different person. It's just what uh, this little, this is from the Visual Cognition Laboratory. Usually about 80% of people do not identify that it's a different person. And so 20% on the first go-round pick it up, 80% don't. And you're just about in that same ballpark. The reason I'm uh, showing that particular thing is really... Uh, mainly for fun, but uh, it also highlights of paying attention is not that easy to do. Even when I asked you to watch it and observe it, it's, it can be quite challenging. But there are a lot of things to pay attention to. There, there are, but they're all, they were all right there. But that's, there are a lot of things to focus on. You're right. And what you're going to focus on is something you have to turn that searchlight towards. And that, that can be a challenge sometimes. So there's a lot of things that you could notice that were different from one to the other. His affect, his shirt, his glasses, his eyes, and the person. All there, there were a lot of things going on there that might be noticed that were quite different. And, you could, and that's one of the things about mindfulness. You can actually bring your attention to different elements at different points in time. And the nice thing about mindfulness is that you actually are, are free to choose what you're going to focus on. So uh, mindfulness is, is something, we'll talk more about how it's used and, and do some of a, a exercise with it as well as we go along here. But that was just an example of trying to focus the attention and how challenging it can be. And the idea of learning mindfulness in our, in our classes and the various classes that I'll mention is that it takes a while to train your attention to be able to focus on something. So what has mindfulness been used for? It's been used for a variety of things. Uh, actually, John Kabat-Zinn sort of brought it to this country in a modern version 
with stress reduction, mindfulness-based stress reduction, about 30 years ago. And that, in turn, has been applied to a variety of conditions such as chronic pain, uh, psoriasis, eating disorders, fibromyalgia, cancer. Lately, it's been used for parenting and childbirth uh, discomfort. And on the psychiatric side of things, it's been used for treating anxiety, depression, borderline personality disorder, addictions in mindfulness-based relapse prevention, and uh, to some extent for bipolar disorder. So it's been used for sort of an increasing number of different conditions. And this is really not an exhaustive list. It's just to give you a a taste of, of what it has been used for in recent years. And in most of these things, there are studies that demonstrate its effectiveness for these conditions. And I'm going to give you some of the, uh, those studies now. This is a study that was done uh, for generalized anxiety disorder where a person uh, doesn't have a particular phobia or panic disorder but just generally feels anxious most of the day. And this is, I don't want to go into all the details of it, but this is the Beck Anxiety Inventory. And as you can see, at baseline, the score was 19. And by the end of the training, which was eight weeks, it had been cut in half to 8.91. And uh, similar, well, some of these other things are uh, similar. This is the profile of moods, showed a similar nice change where a a decrease in score is good. So it it was very useful for these people, and this has been shown in several other studies as well. You have a question? This particular study did not have a control group. This was an open trial, and we'll talk about control groups a little bit uh, later as we go along. Uh, This is a mindfulness uh, uh, scale, the mindfulness awareness scale, that, that uh, act increased as you would expect it to with the training. So it went from 3.68 up to 4.2. So that, that is, is one particular scale that is used to measure mindfulness. So the people became more mindful by the end of the training. So as the mindfulness went up, the anxiety levels went down. Uh, In another study that did have a control group, a small study of people with bipolar disorder, looking at people between episodes, not people in full-blown episodes of bipolar disorder, looking at uh, anxiety and depression levels. This is Beck Anxiety and Beck Depression Inventory. Uh, In the control group, you can see that the pre-level of... uh, anxiety was 11 and actually worsened, went up to 20, whereas in the, in the group receiving mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, of a special form of mindfulness I'm going to tell you more about, it went down from 12 to 6, and the depression levels, again, went up a bit in the control group and went down to about one-half in the people getting mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. That was a weightless control. But the typical control group has to ha- would be to have the other half of the group wait and not get the intervention and get the usual treatment. So what is mindfulness-based cognitive therapy? Well, it's, uh, there's basically sort of two main, well, 
one main form of mindfulness that many people learn, and it's called mindfulness-based stress reduction. And that's, as I mentioned earlier, is something that was developed by John Kabat-Zinn. And that has been used to treat a lot of physical ailments, things like chronic pain uh, or dealing with uh, a cardiac condition or stress reduction and so on. But in terms of dealing with emotions, a derivative of that, sort of modeled after mindfulness-based stress reduction, is mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. So it looks quite similar to mindfulness-based stress reduction. If you were looking at it from up above, you'd see it's the same. It's eight, eight weeks long, once-a-week group format, and the sessions are actually two and a quarter hours long. And then afterwards, people come to uh, a monthly maintenance session, typically, and uh, they also practice while they're going to the eight, uh, once a week for eight weeks, they have homework and practice uh, at home uh, the other six days of the week doing meditations on their own, listening to uh, CDs or doing other forms of meditation. And the group sizes vary from six to 14 typically, and they do things like uh, formal meditations called a body scan, and we're going to do a bit of one a little later. Uh, mindful stretching, things like yoga or mindfulness of the breath or listening to sounds mindfully. And then they, we teach informal uh, techniques like how to be mindful in your everyday life. So like when you're eating a meal, like eating it mindfully or when you're uh, brushing your teeth. Uh, what does it actually feel like if you pay attention to it? I mean, these are things that we normally do. Think about eating. <clears throat> normally when you eat, do you taste your food? I mean, typically, we're, you know, we're talking with somebody else, we're reading the paper, we're watching TV, we're doing anything but really tasting the food. It can be remarkable to sit in silence and just taste the food and paying attention to what the texture of the food is, the smells, the tastes. It, just to do it for five minutes can be really remarkable. Uh, I'll give you a, a, a bit of homework. I'll tell you something that you can try doing just as an illustration of that. One of the exercises from mindfulness-based stress reduction or mindfulness-based cognitive therapy is uh, eating a raisin mindfully. And I know some people don't like raisins, some do, but whatever you do, whatever you do uh, try eating a raisin so uh, mindfully. So when you get a chance, pick up some raisins, take one in your hand, and look at it as if you've never seen it before, like you're just fresh, with fresh eyes. Notice it, what it's like. Bring it slowly to your mouth, smelling it, and then put it in your mouth, close your eyes, and taste it. Move it around in your mouth, and then slowly begin to chew it. And you may taste it for the first time. I know I did this when I, in my 50s, and, uh, you know, normally we eat raisins, you know, one, two, if you eat them at all, I mean, you know, you're throwing them in, really not tasting them. And I'll, here's, the, here's the little uh, secret homework for you. 
when you do start to chew the raisin, you, can, you will taste it on a speci- in a specific portion of your mouth. Your job is to find out where. We also do things like a three-minute breathing space and uh, to teach people a very short, portable uh, meditation that they can take with them wherever they go. But the heart of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, or MBCT, is to help teach people to see that their thoughts that they develop are just mental events and not facts. A lot of times when we have thoughts, first of all, uh, when the thoughts occur, we make a critical error when we have thoughts. We believe them. And thoughts are just mental events. They're transient. And for people who are prone towards anxiety or depression, those thoughts tend to run in negative directions. So thoughts are kind of things that pop up. Uh, Sylvia Borstein talks about this as, you know, as our thoughts are like popcorn poppers, where, you know, thoughts just pop up. And, you know, you're maybe sitting very quietly focusing on your breath or some other focus, and you can notice a thought just emerge. And it may be, you know, something negative. But uh, if you're prone towards depression or some, something negative, you know, in, in terms of an anxious thought. And those thoughts, if you start to believe those thoughts, can get you into a lot of trouble. Like, oh, I notice, uh, I'm, you know, like, I wonder how I'm doing giving this talk today. Maybe, you know, it's not going over so well, and uh, this is happening, and this fellow doesn't look too wide awake, and you know, here we're going on, you know, Right away, a cascade of things go on, and pretty soon I'm saying, well, I think I'll say goodnight, you know, uh, to, uh, and that would be moving towards catastrophic thinking, catastrophizing, you know, that is very common in anxiety disorders or depression. And so those kinds of thoughts, what we learn in MBCT is that those thoughts are just thoughts. They're not real. They're not facts. Uh, And once people learn this, it really frees them up quite a bit to be able to respond to them more skillfully. So if I have that thought, I can decide, well, am I going to pay attention to it or not? I have a choice. I don't have to pay attention to it. So how do we get people to recognize that it's just a mental event? We do that in various ways. Let's take an example right here. Let's take an example like this. Imagine that you're, you're walking down the street and uh, you see somebody you know on the other side of the street and you, you wave to that person and the other person keeps walking by and they don't wave back. What do you think? What do you feel? Just raise your hand if you have a thought or reaction. They don't like they don't like me, okay. What was that? They didn't see you. They didn't see me, okay. Wrong person. Wrong person. I, di- I <laughs> didn't see them right, okay. They're on the phone. They're not paying attention, okay. They didn't recognize me, okay. Maybe they're rude. 
Okay. Anybody else? Rejection. They're rejecting me. Okay, good. Any other? How do you feel in this situation? Confused, I heard. What else? Hurt. Hurt. Rejected. Rejected. Embarrassed. Embarrassed. Sad. Sad. Angry. Angry. Relieved, okay. <laughs> so, I, so what we do in the class is go, we have, you know, we have 16 people. We go around and say, okay, what's going on? Now, what is the fact of that particular situation? No, there, that's right. Nobody actually knows. I may be having all of these thoughts, and I may be reacting. You know, in one of our classes where we did this, somebody said, that's exactly what happened with this guy, and I haven't talked to him since. <laughs> you know, that's what, he, that's what happened. And he was certain that he had been rejected by this person he had seen, and that was it. And versus, I'll tell you, by the end of the eight weeks, the guy says, you know, I may have made a mistake. So that's what mindfulness gives you some space. Some people think of it as mindfulness gives you space between the, between the spark and the flame. So there's a little bit of a gap there. So instead of having to react, say, angrily, like I've just been rejected and I'm never going to talk to that person again. In fact, I'm going to send them an angry email or, you know, who knows. Uh, you could say, well, maybe there's another possibility. I feel rejected, but, you know, maybe they were on the cell phone. Maybe they're depressed and they're not paying attention. Or maybe they're, they just got chewed out by their boss and they're upset. Or all kinds of different possibilities. So there is no particular fact. So it's helping people realize that there is no fact. Even though we may believe it, and the initial response is to believe it absolutely, the reality is there may not be any fact there to hang your hat on. It's just a thought. I had the thought. And instead of believing it and, and running with it, we say, well, it's just a thought. It may or may not be correct. And in mindfulness, you have a choice of whether you let that thought go or not, which we'll talk about. We call this decentering in mindfulness, where you get some distance from the thought, from a thought. Sometimes it's called metacognition, or cognition is you know what we psychiatrists use for a thought, fancy word, and metacognition because it's beyond the thought. It's like looking at the thought process. Like, you know, there's, there's, we just got 20 different possibilities for what happened in that transaction. And those are different thoughts about it. There is no, there is no fact that we can hang our hat on. So rather than saying, well, this is the way it is, I can choose, I can choose one that works better for me than the one I just chose. Let me give you an illustration about this, and let me contrast mindfulness-based cognitive therapy with cognitive behavior therapy, which is more traditional. In cognitive behavior therapy, let's say, let's use an example of somebody who's depressed. In cognitive behavior therapy, a typical kind of picture might be like this. A person who's depressed would say something like, you know, I'm not a good person. 
or I'm, I'm a guilty person, I'm an unworthy person, I'm a failure, I haven't done much, I'll never be a success. Th- those are typical depressive thoughts. I mean, we actually, there's, we have a, some scales that where you can, where we, I have a, a list of the top 30 uh, depressive thoughts. They're very well worked out. And the, the issue is, now, uh, in cognitive therapy, you might say, when the person says, I, I'm an unworthy person, or I'm, a, not a very go- I'm not a good person, in cognitive behavior therapy, we'd say, okay, that's a negative thought. Uh, let's try to weigh the evidence and answer back to that thought. So when you say, I'm not a good person, What's the evidence that supports that idea or refutes that idea? What's the evidence that you're not a good person? What's the evidence that you are a good person? And, and then say, well, I did do, I was successful at this, I was failed at that, so, so maybe I'm not a complete failure, maybe I'm, I'm okay as a person, but I'm not a very good person, but I'm not terrible either. So maybe a more balanced thought would be I'm, I'm okay as a person, but not really a good person. So you help the person come up with a, a change in the thought content. Now the trouble with this in, say, depression, is the person usually has many years of evidence. And when you ask them for evidence, they may say, well, you want evidence? I have a bushel basket full. Because they've been viewing things very negatively for a long time. So. Mindfulness-based cognitive therapy has a different approach. First of all, when they say, I'm, I'm not a good person or I'm a rotten person or something like that, what we say is, wait, actually, you're having the thought you're a rotten person. As soon as you do that, you're helping the person start to decenter because they're moving away from identifying with that thought. So I'm having the thought, and now I don't really have to, I don't have to argue about it. I don't have to have evidence for or against it. I can decide whether I'm going to hang on to that thought or let it go, just like you just did now. Like I had the thought when the person didn't wave back to me uh, that they don't like me. Well, I can hang on to that thought, or I say, well, actually, I don't know. Maybe they just were on the cell phone and they didn't hear me or didn't see me. Or, so I don't really know. Well, I'm having the thought I'm not a worthy person, but you know, I don't have to hang on to it and start running with that idea. I can let it go. So they start to learn how to distance themselves from those thoughts and be able to be, uh, without having to get into an argue about, argument about whether it's true or not, so it's thought process focuses. It helps the person change the relationship to their thoughts rather than trying to change the thought content itself. This is a radically different way of being in the world because most of us have the, the thought, uh, a, a thought, and we believe it. We actually go around. We don't even question it. We have the thought, you know, you know, uh, whatever the case may be, if you're prone towards depression, you know, I'm not a good person, or I'm this or that, or, uh, or if you're prone towards anxiety, like uh, things are going to turn out terrible, that uh, 
that's 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 exactly what you believe without ever stepping back and realizing it's just a thought. I mean, depression, the way we understand it, is really the person feels as if they have experienced a loss. Anxiety is they're anticipating a loss occurring. So this relates to uh, something we mentioned earlier about mindfulness. We're trying to bring attention to the present moment and getting away from focused on the past or the future and just focus on the present moment. It's, it's something that we don't, we don't do uh, typically. Sometimes we do do it in certain experiences, and some of us are more mindful in our naturally than others. And when we look at people in terms of mindfulness scales, if we did it right here in this room, there'd be, you know, a variability amongst that, uh, amongst the group here. Some people who perhaps have never had any mindfulness or maybe very mindful just naturally and others less so. But uh, it, it is a different way of looking at things. It's bringing attention to things that we don't typically do. That's why that, remember in that initial definition, it's bringing attention with intention. So it's something like, wow, I'm actually looking at my thought. I just had this thought you know, about this, and I'm looking at it. So it doesn't require that you be depressed or that you be anxious. You don't have to do the, that at all. I mean, m- certainly uh, mindfulness meditation does not require that you have that. But I'm using, it, using these as some examples of how it can help with different mood states. In terms of, to give you maybe another way of looking at this, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, when it was originally developed, was first called selective attention training. So it means you have to have the ability to focus the attention onto whatever you're focusing on, the breath, the body, or so on. There is a relationship. They are quite different. You're right. And I'm not sure that... uh, the uh, whether mindfulness-based cognitive therapy is exactly the best term, but it's the one that has been utilized the most. Uh, they use cognitive therapy techniques, but they use them to sh- in a different way. Like you could use this exercise with the person, the hand waving, in a cognitive therapy way. We use it to show attention to thought processes. In cognitive therapy, you might help the person try to change the thought content. There is some room for confusion, and you have, to, uh, you, you have to understand. I don't want to go into all the... There's, there's a lot of differences. Some of the exercises that are used in the course have similarity. A lot of the things, in fact, have similarity to traditional cognitive therapy things. For example, like when we use the automatic thought questionnaire to, of that top 30 list of depressive thoughts... That was originally developed for cognitive therapy. And in cognitive therapy, what you would do with a person is say, look, pick out what are your top ten, you know, your Letterman top five thoughts. And then let's challenge those and try to change them like this. But in, we use that same list, but we don't try to change them. What we do is try to notice those thoughts are quite variable. Here's a, just an example of 
major depression and how mindfulness can be useful. Uh, if you look at major depression, that's another term for clinical depression. If you look at in, say, a young person in childhood and adolescent, you have a life stressor that may be significant and may lead to symptoms. This is the threshold for exhibiting a clinic for a, for a diagnosis, this line here. And so a person may have symptoms, but they don't meet the criteria, and then here they break through. But you've noticed, actually, as the person gets older, the amount of stress that they need to have precipitate an episode is actually less. So that with time, the brain gets sensitized and may activate episodes of depression with less stress. So you have to develop some strategy for preventing these episodes. And the way we currently do it is either with antidepressants on a maintenance basis or the newest thing is mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. So in mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, this is a study by Teasdale. They took people who had recovered from depression completely and gave half of the people mindfulness-based cognitive therapy and half didn't get it and followed them for a year. The control was treatment as usual. And in the people who followed for a year, uh, they had basically twice the chance of staying free of depression if they had received mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. This study was replicated by Teasdale and his colleague Ma, Helen Ma, and they actually had even better results in this replication study. So they had over twice the chance of staying free. But this has some weakness in it because the uh, this is just treatment as usual. The, you know, this group is getting eight weeks of the good stuff, and the other group is not getting that. So Koiken at uh, Exeter University in England actually did a, a very interesting study, which is a, a better controlled study, where he took people who had recovered with antidepressants from depression, and they were on antidepressants, and randomized them to receive either mindfulness-based cognitive therapy and taper off their medication or continue with antidepressants. That was the control. And that's the conventional treatment. This was a high-risk group, though. These are people who had multiple episodes of depression. So they were likely, and they picked that because they wanted to see that they were going to have, uh, they were in a sense, hoping they would have a different, be able to see the relapses in a year's period. And what they found was that uh, in the comparison between mindfulness-based cognitive therapy and antidepressants, they were equivalent statistically. One was as good as the other. Actually, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy had a better rate of preventing relapse, 47% relapse versus 60% with antidepressants, but statistically in the analysis they were equivalent. But when they looked at uh, depression levels and actual quality of life, uh, 
the, the mindfulness group was actually better. So this was a very interesting study that actually is a very good control. This was done in England, uh, and the control was treatment by their uh, general practitioner. Now, this I just want to mention something that is, I'm particularly interested, uh, as Descartes mentioned, I'm uh, director of the Depression Center here, uh, and I am interested in depression, so uh, I'll impose that on you a little bit. But uh, the, we, we have a problem here with treatment-resistant depression in this country and actually in the world. Here's an interesting fact. You know that major depression, clinical depression, is the number one cause of disability in the world after infectious diseases. In the, in the develop, in the, that's in the developing countries. In, say, example, North America, in the developed countries, it's number one, more so than cancer or coronary artery disease. Some of it has to do with stigma and not addressing problems, but that's changing. Part of it is we've, you know, we've developed the depression center here, and there's a bill before Congress now that was introduced by uh, Senator Stabenow from Michigan with a co-sponsorship by three other senators to establish comprehensive depression centers across the country, similar to comprehensive cancer centers that were established 30 years ago. If you'll remember, the cancer used to be the C word. If somebody had cancer, well, let's not talk about it. And depression is much the same. Uh, and what we want to do by having depression centers is move it out so it is talked about, because uh, you know depression is a very common entity. It's the most common thing that anybody in this room is going to deal with amongst ourselves or loved ones or friends that we have. And uh, it's something we, ne we need to be better at treating. As this illustrates, here's something the drug companies might not like either. If you take the STAR-D trial, which was a sequenced treatment alternative to relieve depression, this was the largest NIMH trial ever done, $54 million. What it did was treat people and said, so we don't really know how to treat people sequentially. If, you know, if we treat them and they don't respond, what do we do? So it gave, started out with people, gave each person citalopram. Uh, they gave it because that was off patent. That's why they selected that drug. They gave everybody citalopram, which is otherwise known as Celexa. If they didn't respond to that, a full dose of that after 12 weeks, then they went on to a second stage and received a different antidepressant or a combination or cognitive therapy. If they didn't respond to that, they went on to a third stage or to a fourth stage. Now, if you look at this, this is really remarkable. After one full treatment, only 30% of the people had fully recovered. That means 70% had not recovered. If they then went on to the second stage, they added another 20%. So after two full treatments, that means 50% had fully recovered, but 50% hadn't. So that means we have a big problem on our hand. And then if you actually follow it out for all four stages of treatment, by the end of it, only 43% of the people are still in full recovery after one year of treatment. So it's a very challenging disorder. That's why we need other treatments besides just throwing another round of medication. We need to have other things 
to, and I'm not against medication in, by any means. They can be life-saving. But we have to add things to it, and mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, mindfulness techniques may be a very valuable uh, addition. I'll show you briefly what we did. We took people, and I don't have to go into the details, they had the Beck score of about 24. We compared them to another group who received medication management. And this shows the results uh, that the people who received MBCT in our depression center, the way we follow, there's, there's an artifact here. Actually, the medication management patients were followed were at uh, 12 weeks was their endpoint because that's how long we, fo we periodically follow them. And in MBCT, we captured them at the end of eight weeks. And there was a decrease in anxiety and a very marked decrease in depression levels to about half in this population. So it was very effective in this group. This just represents it. So uh, quite a few higher. You can see 30% of the people completely recovered versus only 10% in the medication management only. And these are some other studies that showed uh, some, uh, these are open trials without controls, but showed uh, similar reductions in uh, depression levels. Uh, it probably isn't important except to say there's now growing evidence, uh, it isn't important to go into the details of these, but there's growing evidence that uh, Mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, which was originally developed just to prevent relapse, can actually be used as a treatment modality for depression as well. This was a study by Kingston, which uh, was a randomized study comparing mindfulness-based cognitive therapy to treatment as usual, showing a marked effect for mindfulness. So how does mindfulness work? What we do in our classes are really a series of different meditations, ranging from body scans to sitting meditations to sound meditations. And what we find is some people love the body scan, some people hate the body scan, uh, and they like sitting meditation or vice versa. You know, and really what we try to do is say, here's a menu of things, and some people like walking meditations, for example. Um, we're going to give you a range of things, and you know you get to pick for yourself. And the idea of this is you decide for yourself what really works for you. And if the body scan is not something that you know is what you connect to, uh, you know that's okay. It's just you know some people are more oriented one way versus another. So uh, you may sometimes. Uh, you may pay attention to, well, you know, what's going on there that I don't notice this? I mean, there, there's a lot that could be done with that particular thought. I mean, without going into it more specifically, sometimes you get to notice things as you're doing a body scan, like, geez, my, I'm holding a lot of tension in my shoulders, like, you know, at the end of each day, or I'm really angry at my boss today, and, you know, I have a headache, uh, a lot of tension here, or something is going on uh, that you may notice certain things that get brought to, the, to your attempt. That's where some of the insight comes from, actually, is 
that when you sit down and give yourself the opportunity to look at these things, you can learn a tremendous amount from these sort of seemingly small things. There's variation. Some, you can do a body scan starting with your head, and some teachers do it that way. Some people do it with the feet. More, I would not say one side versus the other to stimulate one side of the brain versus the other. Oh, that's an interesting thing that could be potentially tested. People do it various ways. Sometimes people do start with the feet because they think it's furthest away from the head, and what we're trying to do is get people into the present moment and not be thinking. And starting with the feet is, is sort of a, a vehicle for doing that. Some people start with the head. It's, there's no particular convention or reason uh, that you could specifically say scientifically you should do one thing versus the other. But it's very common that people, as you probably all experienced, <clears throat> for your minds to wander. It's, it's what minds do. Most people have the misconception about meditation is, I'm doing it wrong because my mind wandered. But meditation is really, your mind wanders and you notice it and then you bring it back. Your mind wanders, you bring it back. And if it wanders a thousand times, you bring it back. And that's the meditation. It isn't just, I lock my mind in on my toes and that's it. It's becoming uh, gentler and kinder with yourself about your mind wandering. because So let's talk about this a little bit. Focus on the here and now, the breath coming in and out, and what's going on in your left leg and foot, right? And dropping away everything else. And this relates to moods, how? Well, as we talked about, you know, with a lot of anxiety and depression type of moods, People are, they're, they're looking towards the future disasters that are going to happen or the ones that have already happened. They feel as if they've happened. So if you help them to say, focus, let's not worry about that. Let's focus on the present moment. It is naturally helps uh, the mood. At least this is what our, these are theories. And I have to say, Nobody is completely clear on exactly how. This is, these are some of our theories about why this may be. We know that it can be quite helpful. Why it is, we're still working on. And that selective attention by itself, focusing on, say, the foot or the breath, may relate to this, that you have a tendency, if you're focused on something like that, that you're not doing things like ruminating. Ruminating is something that tends to lead to either anxiety or depression. Ruminating are, are you know, is, most people, th- here's another type of thought that most people think, uh, you know, I'm ruminating about something. They don't, maybe, maybe they don't even identify it as ruminating. They just say, well, listen, I had this interaction with this person at work today. You know, I should have said this to them. I wish I had said that. If I would said this, this would have happened. You know, and, well, if I would said that, that wouldn't have been so good. So maybe I should have said this. And they think, they're, what are they doing? They never step back and decenter. What am I actually doing when I'm ruminating? If you ask them, well, they think, well, I'm getting ready in case it happens again. But it doesn't lead to problem resolution. In fact, rumination has a tendency to lead to worse mood. 
So if you're focused on your breath, it sort of fills up your, your mind's capacity. You're not, you're not ruminating. So focusing your attention decreases this. We also think that mindfulness can enhance compassion and self-compassion. So it's towards yourself and towards others. Uh, the decentering is an important element of mindfulness because you start to be able to uh, notice thoughts as they emerge. It's, uh, it takes usually having a you know practice at this and having a steady focus for a while, and then you can start to notice when these thoughts emerge. And you can start seeing them as, well, actually, this is just a thought and not be so trapped by it. And that may be an important element of CBT, in fact, because what we notice in traditional cognitive behavior therapy, when we've looked at that, people actually start to improve before they change the thought content. We said, well, in, in CBT, you have to help people change the thought content. Actually, that is uh, a slight misconception People start to improve in CBT as, f- as soon as they start to notice that they're having a thought. As soon as the person can say, instead of, I'm an unworthy person, that I'm having the thought I'm an unworthy person, that alone helps them improve. Here's uh, an important idea about mindfulness, uh, is that mindfulness may help you accept things as they are. Or in other words, this equation is quite useful, that the amount of suffering a person goes through, and we all suffer to some extent, is equal to resistance times the pain. And this can be emotional pain or physical pain. If you resist it, you actually end up suffering more. So if you say, what do I mean by that? This is not to say that resistance acceptance means... uh, So if you lower resistance, you're just accepting it and resigning yourself. Resistance actually means, uh, lowering resistance means like what we see in in depression or pain, for example, is that a person has pain, let's say a physical pain, where they may say, oh, it's terrible, I have this pain. It's, uh, I'm a a weak person because I have this pain. I shouldn't have this pain. It's unfair I have this pain. Uh, I'll never get over this pain. All of this is the resistance versus saying, you know, I have this, these physical sensations which are painful, and I can accept them as they are right now and, not have, and, and go on living my life with them. And if you actually lower the resistance, you lower the amount of what Sapolsky has called adventitious suffering that only humans do. By that I mean, if you have, you know, if, if an animal steps on a thorn in the woods, the animal feels pain sensations. But they don't say, you know, did I deserve this? <laughs> or, you know, uh, you know, maybe I should have listened to what my mother said. Or, you know, I should have done this. You know, they don't go into all kinds of things around it. They still have pain. The pain is still there. But the amount of stuff that gets laid on top of it and multiplies it 
is diminished. And that's the same whether you're talking about physical pain or emotional pain. So it may be, even with, even with depression, it, it can be uh, quite the same. You know, for example, uh, Winston Churchill described his depression as being the black dog. You'd say the black dog is back today. And in fact, in Australia, they have a black dog depression clinic which is uh, doing quite a bit of research on depression. It's a very interesting work. But they, uh, I like that image because, you know, you could say, well, okay, the black dog is back today, and now how am I going to react to this? I could be terrified. I can, you know, want to escape and so on. But if I say, well, okay, I'm going to accept it just as it is, I, could, I can actually look at it, study it, you know, observe what's going on, and then the black dog doesn't, it, it may still not be a beautiful dog, but I don't have to be terrified, and that resistance, you know, the terror component can be greatly decreased. And that's true in depression. For example, many people we find are very depressed about being depressed. That is, they're laying on additional suffering to an already painful emotional state. And uh, it doesn't mean I'm suggesting that they accept it and, and resign themselves to it, but if they can accept it and say, okay, this is what it is today, that then they're in a position actually to do something about it without the, the terror and so on. And as many of you know, for example, in substance abuse, acceptance is a, and lowering the resistance in a sense Acceptance is another is the sort of the reciprocal of the resistance. If you ex- a person with substance abuse can never do anything about their condition until they accept that they have the problem. If they don't accept they have a problem, they will not be in a ch- in a position to do anything about it. Here's a little cartoon. I also mentioned that we think that self-compassion may be playing a role. Uh, How does self-compassion work? Well, it may help buffer some of the feelings of criticism that one has towards the self. People with depression or anxiety are often very critical of themselves. And uh, that you learn with mindfulness to be kinder and gentler to yourself. You know, if you can accept yourself, say, okay, my mind wandered. I can accept that without saying, oh, boy, I'm stupid, or, boy, I'm, gonna, I'm a failure at this, or, I, you know, uh, I'm not doing it as good as the person next to me. Say, oh, am I wanted? I just note it and bring the attention back. And, for, you know, I can accept that. Then you're, you, as one person said in the group, if I can let, forgive myself for my mind wander, I guess I can forgive myself for other things. The... Uh, so people start to say things like this, I'm gentler on myself, I'm less critical, I can talk back to myself more, uh, and handle stress better. We did another study, I won't say more about it, except uh, it, it's, it, uh, it just it highlighted, uh, this was... A, uh, it showed that when we measured certain factors in these p- 
people, uh, the anxiety levels decreased. And just in terms of what is different about this slide compared to some of the other things, we actually measured rumination, and the people actually did ruminate less uh, using mindfulness techniques. Okay, here's um, just a couple slides, and then we'll open up for questions. Now, there, are, there is evidence about biological changes with mindfulness. At the University of Wisconsin, uh, Richie Davidson and his colleagues did a, an interesting study a few years ago. They taught people mindfulness-based stress reduction and showed that after eight weeks of study, they, they, what they did was take a group of uh, employees at a corporation uh, outside of Madison, and uh, half of them got mindfulness-based stress reduction, half of them were wait-listed. And the people who uh, received mindfulness-based stress reduction after eight weeks had changes in their EEG, their electroencephalogram, where they had activation of their left prefrontal cortex, which is the area of the brain associated with uh, positive mood states. So there's a convergence of evidence about these things that uh, activating certain areas of the brain <clears throat> seem to have powerful mood effects. And you can do it in various ways, directly, say, with transcranial magnetic stimulation, but mindfulness meditation may do similarly. And they also uh, measured antibody levels in response to uh, immunization and found that the people who had received mindfulness training had enhanced uh, uh, antibody response. Now here's, uh, I think my last slide, almost last, the, just to show you, this is an fMRI scan uh, of people who received mindfulness training, eight weeks of mindfulness training, and what it shows is that people had activation of uh, this portion of the brain as you see, this is sort of midline. If you, this is a slice, here's the eyes right here, right? This is a slice. In these people, before the training, they had this central focus. And here, you see, it shifted towards the periphery. And I don't want to go into all the details because it's a little complicated. But uh, what it's showing is that with eight weeks of mindfulness training, that these people had a shift in their, their uh, brain functioning that was measurable using functional MRI techniques. This is, there's two ways of measuring, well, there's uh, two essential ways that we image the brain is either functional MRI or PET scans. And uh, these are fMRI scans that show these people having a difference by uh, having the mindfulness training compared to being uh, when they started out. And so what we're, the, I think the important element here is that you can make real significant difference in brain functioning through this kind of training, and we're just at the verge of understanding exactly how to do it. Uh, in fact, uh, this is our study that we're doing now here for, uh, we're taking people who have treatment-resistant depression, and we're randomizing them to receive either mindfulness-based cognitive therapy or the health enhancement program as the control condition. 
And this health enhancement program consists of physical functioning, music therapy, and nutrition. So it's quite an active control. And we're going to follow them before and after and then for one year afterwards. And we're hoping to add uh, the functional imaging component. This is already underway and funded. And we're hoping to add this uh, uh, functional imaging so that a portion of these people will be able to get this as well. But uh, w one of the exciting things about this area is we're learning that by focusing attention, you can actually train the mind to have very powerful effects. Two weeks ago, we had our, our depression symposium here, and uh, I think Descartes probably also talked about deep brain stimulation for refractory depression, where Helen Mayberg uh, from Emory spoke and she's found that, that by putting an electrode into a certain area of the brain called Area 25 and stimulating it, for people who have severe depression that fails to respond to anything else, she can instantly turn off depression. And then they implant a, a pacemaker-like device, and the people can have continuous relief of depression. These are very, this is not for everybody, because most people don't like to have their head drilled open. But, uh, but, it, but it highlights what the amazing thing about it, I think, is not just that it can work for these people, but she's found a key depression circuit in the brain. Then our next speaker uh, on this, actually from Stanford, Ian Gottlieb, spoke about how they're using fMRI feedback to train people to do the same thing without sticking an electrode in, but by training them in the fMRI machine to actually learn how to do this through feedback, just like biofeedback, only they learn how to control this one area of their brain. So it's pretty powerful, and we think that mindfulness has a somewhat similar effect, and we're going to look to measure this in, our, uh, in, that, in this, this study. So let me stop at this point. I'll mention these are some of the collaborators who've worked with me on uh, the, our study. It's called the, pra uh, uh, the Al Practicing Alternatives to Heal Depression Study, and it's looking at people who have failed to respond to two or more antidepressant trials, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll be doing it over the next uh, several years. Back there. Um, I just had two comments. Number one, um, I guess it's called meditation practice for a reason. Um, I'm wondering also, has there been any, do you ever work with disaggregating the self so that people can see um, that they are not necessarily their thoughts? And I think that's, in this culture, you know, the, one of the foundations of Western thought, every time you say Descartes, I think Rene Descartes, I think, therefore I am. And that's, that's an aspect of Western thought that conflicts with mindfulness training in the sense that, that what a lot of Eastern traditions see as compulsive ideation or rumination, we see as the, the essence of the ego or the self being this, I think, therefore I am. So, so it, it seems like we have a particular disadvantage and, and uh, mindfulness training uh, press against you know, some of the foundations of Western thinking. Yes, I think you're right. That I mean, there are, 
different cultures uh, come to this more or less easily, and uh, the view of the self can be an important component of that. So uh, you raised some excellent points. I think they're difficult to to get into uh, further here, but I think they're very good points. Yeah? Dr. Hall mentioned that you can be depressed but not necessarily sad. So, and I've had people tell me that people can be depressed and not know it. So are there other ways depression manifests itself besides just having a bad mood? Well, other ways. Because I was very surprised when he said you're not necessarily sad. That's sort of what isn't that what most people think? You're sad, you're low, you're down. That's a common feature of depression, but it's not mandatory to make the diagnosis. And there are people who experience say, not sadness so much, but lack of ability to enjoy everyday things. So, like, they normally would enjoy. Energy. Well, they lack energy. They lack, I'm sure he showed you, you know, like the nine cardinal symptoms, and if you have five of the nine, that's enough to make the diagnosis. And many people don't don't have certainly all nine, and they... and depressed mood may not be part of it. And sometimes, particularly as people age, depressed mood may not be the most prominent feature. People may have more physical symptoms, and you know they may go, they may go see their primary care physician more than they go see a psychiatrist, and they go with, you know, I just have lack of energy, I can't enjoy things, and I have this bad back and stomach ache or whatever headaches or whatever those somatic complaints are. And, but if you go through the list uh, of symptoms, they may fit the criteria, but they don't have depressed mood. I've treated people. Uh, I saw a man some time ago who had, he, he had absolutely no depressed mood. He had lost 65 pounds of weight, 65 pounds of weight. But if you ask him, are you depressed? No. Absolutely not. We treated him with an antidepressant, and uh, he responded beautifully, started to function much better, according to his wife, gained weight, and asked him again, well, did you think you were depressed? No, I was never depressed. And so, I mean, it's, but, he, but his functioning and his ability to enjoy things changed dramatically. So it can be a tricky diagnosis. Yeah. Um, I work at the UCSF Mental Health Clinic, and I, um, you know, I, I watch pretty much the standard of care around depression is antidepressants, maybe plus talk therapy, usually 20 sessions or less. Um, maybe a group is recommended. Um, when is this going to become the standard of care? When are we going to actually... I, I just, I mean, there's no way, I know that this is a rhetorical question, but this is wonderful. I mean, it's, it's 
really, I see this as the hope for depression because I've, I've watched people not respond to antidepressants or I've watched antidepressants work for a short period of time. And I just, I, I, I want more research. How much research do we need before we start prescribing MBSR? Well, it's a good question, but, you know, it, it, there, there are a number of studies, but there's this, this study is actually the first study that is a randomized control trial of actively treating depression. The other studies that I showed you that were randomized trials were for relapse prevention. So this is the first study that actually treats depression. And, you know, we're at the, it'll be, you know, we're at the stage of building the evidence base for introducing this. If this is, you know, if this is effective, it'll be, I think, pretty powerful in moving the field along. The question is, what's the difference or similarity between dialectical behavior therapy? There's a lot of overlap between them. Uh, Dialectical behavior therapy has uh, a, a significant mindfulness component in it. Uh, and if you remember from the first slide I mentioned, uh, or one of the early slides about borderline personality disorder, that's uh, designed specifically by Marsha Linehan for dialectical behavior therapy. It usually differs in, uh, it doesn't have specific discrete uh, meditations like this. It has sort of more focal uh, applications of mindfulness, but it's there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of things that are developing around this dialectical behavior therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. These are all they they have a lot of overlap between them, and there's different variations, but a lot of connection. Helen Mayberg did the uh, deep brain stimulation for Area 25 for, for ref- treatment refractory depression. Back there. Okay, so you're asking what's, how, what's the difference between MBCT and MBSR. They're quite similar. A lot of the meditations and the basic structure are exactly the same. I'd say that where they differ is MBCT is really focused on depression and anxiety. And it's, uh, so it's focused on the emotional side of things. MBSR, if you have taken a class like that, it's, there's people... There are people with anxiety and depression, but there's people with heart disease, cancer, pain, fibromyalgia, everything. So it really can't be focused on the emotional aspects per se. So there's much less of a focus. And uh, so there's, there's quite a difference in the feel uh, of the two of them. For somebody who has a more general thing, MBSR is a very good choice. For somebody who's dealing with emotional aspects, MBCT is a a more focused effort.
But a lot of the meditations are the same. And, you know, you could approach it, you know, if, if you don't have access to MBCT for some reason, you could certainly give MBSR a first shot. So MBCT Well, for somebody who qualifies, the question is, is what is MBCT being used for? It is, MBCT was originally developed for relapse prevention, but there are now, I think, uh, six or seven uh, trials, some, one uh, randomized small trial showing it to be effective for depression, uh, for active depression, so, so there are a numerous open trials. This will be the first large-scale clinical trial of it. So, but we are using it here at UCSF for treating people, and the results, you know, have been quite good in in our experience with it. But you know, until we finish this study, you know, we can't say for for sure. No. Like, or looking at the effects it has on adolescents or children, where are those studies being conducted? Stanford. Okay. Well, there's some at Stanford. There's, actually one for uh, at Pittsburgh also. And do you know if within that, within within those studies, they're also looking at the impact this can have on children with spectrum disorders such as autism or Asperger's? I don't know the answer to that. I'm not aware of it, but it, it, they, they could be. Uh, and you think there might be some use, utility in terms of uh, training attention and so on, but I just don't know that area well enough. Okay. Um, well, wasn't it true that when certain people, when they didn't have a psychological disorder and they did mindfulness, that actually their mood had gone down in one of your studies? Or did I misinterpret that? Early on in one of your sheets? I don't think so. Yeah. There, uh, in, there's, uh, no, I don't think that's true. Can you sum up the profile of the new state score was decreased, but that's for negative. Yes, that was for negative moods. So there, there were, in, uh, you, have, you have to be careful in interpreting some of those instruments where, Going down or going up may mean different things, but in that study of, of generalized anxiety, the moods, the anxiety levels went down and the mood improved, and the vigor, profile moods have has different components, and the moods improved with mindfulness. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.